Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Cricket Lou, along with my broadcasting partner, Matt Larson. Hi, everybody. And today we have a special guest, Kim Davies, uh, my friend and colleague at ICANN. And he is VP of IANA Services at ICANN and president of Public Technical Identifiers. So that's a mouthful. I think we should probably first, first start and ask well, welcome, Kim, but then also ask, could you tell us what that means? Sure, Matt. Uh, firstly, thanks for uh, having me on. It's a real pleasure. Um, yeah, I have a long job title, um, but in essence, uh, it really boils down to I head up the team that delivers the IANA functions, the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority. Uh, we do things like manage the content of the root zone. Uh, we also do other things like IP address allocation, protocol parameters, all those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, the, the title really reflects the fact that um, a few years ago, the community came together and decided that uh, the owner function should be spun out into its own nonprofit that is somewhat distinct from ICANN. And that nonprofit is called Public Technical Identifiers. Um, it has its own board of directors, um, and but it is closely um, associated with ICANN and we work very closely with ICANN. Uh, indeed, ICANN provides all the funding, um, all the staff and so forth to make PTI work. So it is, it's kind of like a subsidiary of ICANN. It's not legally a subsidiary, but it's very closely related to ICANN's operation and mission. Um, so that's that's my role. And uh, we have a great team that deliver the IANA functions day in, day out. And uh, DNS is a, is a key part of what we do. How big is IANA? We have, I think, as of right now, we have 16 staff. Oh, that's pretty lean. It's it's a small team. Um, it's grown a little bit, but thinking back when I started, I mean, it's really more or less doubled in size over the last 15 or so years. So it hasn't had a huge growth. Uh, the work that we do uh, has remained relatively stable over the years. I mean, we've had growth in terms of the number of top-level domains that are out there and the associated administrative burden um, to manage all those um, relationships. And of course, I think what we'll be talking about a little bit today is, is the key ceremonies. Once we added DNSSEC to the root zone in 2010, uh, our operational uh, burden there increased a lot. So we needed to hire some staff that were specialized in that area. And, and that's part of the headcount increase that we've had. Um, Kim, the, uh, the old... Uh the old function, the old IANA function, uh, was kind of spun out of of like USC ISI or something like that, right? Um, it, is it is it still? Do you still have a bunch of people in Southern California, or is it sort of geographically distributed now? Actually, these days we're quite focused in Southern California. Um, you're right on the history. I mean, if you wanted to trace the lineage of, of IANA right back to day one, um, it, it's really it starts with John Postel. Um, sure. One of the one of the founders of of the internet and and um, what was necessary to coordinate back in the early days of of the internet being uh, deployed in an experimental level. Um, John himself, uh, I think, was at UCLA. Later moved to uh, University of Southern California, and what we know of today's IANA functions were performed by him and his team at the University of Southern California. Uh, sort of in the 1990s. Um, what happened was in the in the mid 1990s, there was a recognition that 
um, the owner functions needed to evolve and be a bit more accountable to the multi-stakeholder community. And it was really that notion that spurred the creation of ICANN. Uh, in fact, before ICANN got its name, um, I think informally it was referred to as the new IANA. Um, and John was uh, involved in the design of, of ICANN as an organization. But really, that, that's why ICANN came to be, it was to be sort of an institutional home for the IANA functions that until that point had bounced around academia and, and sort of defense and, and other areas of the US government. Um, but to your question, uh, where we're located, um, today we're mostly in Southern California. I mean, ICANN started its uh, existence in the same building as USC in Marina del Rey. Uh, we've since grown out of that building, but we've moved fairly close by. Um, the INA staff over time have um, sometimes been outside of, of California, sometimes within. Uh, when I started with the organization, I was actually based in Brussels. Um, but as of today, we really have all of our team based in California, uh, more or less organically. It hasn't been a deliberate design for it to evolve that way, but that's how we've ended up. Cool. I get the Brussels connection from your strong Belgian accent. <laughs> right, right. Yes, I sound very Belgian. <laughs> Our listeners can't see, but in the background behind Kim is a world map that if you look at it closely, you realize, wait a minute, Australia is in the center of the map. So, yeah. So. Yes. It's not, uh, it's not one of those, those that's rendered with, with uh, the antipodes at the top of the map, though, right? No, it's, it's right side up, as they say. It's just got <laughs> Australia in the, in the center. It's correctly oriented, well, talked... I think, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, we've talked on the podcast um, multiple times about the root KSK and the fact that uh, ICANN manages it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I've talked about how I've been a ceremony administrator and and run the ceremonies a few times, which is um, which is a lot of fun, actually. the The thing about the ceremony administrator and and Kim knows this because you're you're a CA, not an internal witness. Is that right, Kim? You're a CA. I was uh, in the past. I've actually relinquished that role. Um, we have uh, separation of duties, and in my current role, I, I can't fulfill the ceremony administrator role anymore, but I have done well, that, it in the past. I guess that makes sense. But yeah, the, the, the nice thing about ceremony administrators, you're the one doing everything. So, you know, the ceremony may take three and a half hours, but it's not boring for you. Everybody else has to watch, but ceremony administrator gets to do stuff. And so maybe. Kim, do you want to give us a little background, though, just for people who may not be familiar on the, the Root KSK and ICANN's role? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we mentioned earlier that we DNSSEC support was brought to the Root Zone uh, in 2010. Uh, and administration of DNSSEC in any zone really uh, partially involves uh, the practice of uh, protecting the cryptographic keys that are used to sign that zone. Um, the root zone in particular has a lot of unique considerations uh, by virtue of being at the top of the, the DNS tree. Um, much like uh, root hints and the root servers have special properties because they need to be put in configurations uh, of people globally uh, and there's certain considerations around that. Uh, we have similar kinds of concerns when it comes to the root zone because the, the uh, the master sort of apex key, the key signing key for the root zone 
um, needs to be similarly configured uh, in all sorts of locations uh, to make DNSSEC work. Um, and it's not easily changeable. So a lot of the design around how we protect um, the KSK for the root zone uh, takes that into consideration. Um, shorthand for that is, is being the trust anchor, um, the, the top of the, the tree of, of certificates that you need to validate against, uh, keys you need to validate against in order to perform validation using DNSSEC. So this is a, an operational responsibility that um, ICANN and subsequently PTI has taken on over the years. Um, and it's really involved developing and then maintaining a certain new discipline uh, that we hadn't historically had, which is um, maintaining cryptographic keys to a certain standard, um, implementing protocols around that, um, entering the world of um, certificate authorities, um, something that ICANN hitherto hadn't been involved in, um, learning all the techniques and associated practices around that and putting our own sort of approach to that um, and um, now we've been doing it for just a little over 10 years and we've certainly learned a lot and we've certainly adapted a lot uh, as that has gone along. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the high level of, of what's involved is, is maintaining cryptographic keys um, associated with the root zone um, and um, all the changes that that's entailed. So operationally, people may be aware, but the... Um the KSK, the root KSK, is is not used on a on a daily basis. It it is used to sign the zone signing key, and Verisign, who's the root zone manager, who uh, generates the root zone uh, typically twice a day and and cryptographically signs it. They sign it with the zone signing key, and the zone signing key derives its legitimacy because it's signed by the key signing key. But that signing happens uh, not very often. Maybe do you want to? That's at the aforementioned ceremonies. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you noted, it's it's there is typically a split in any zone between the key signing key and the zone signing key. Uh, that's certainly not unique to the root zone. Uh, but usually if you're operating a, a typical DNS zone, administration of the KSK and the ZSK is by the same party. Um, there was a conscious decision in the design of, of the root zone to separate responsibility for the ZSK and the KSK. So VeriSign in its role as um, root zone maintainer, which is uh, effectively means they publish the root zone. Um, they've taken up responsibility for managing the, the zone signing key, the ZSK. Um, and we've taken on responsibility for managing the KSK. Now, um, it's not the zone signing key changes on a much more regular interval than the KSK. Um, the KSK is relatively static. Um, and so the approach that we've taken is that we conduct um, special events, key signing ceremonies um, on a regular basis to take uh, the key material that VeriSign has generated, the signatures for the ZSK, and, and sign them with the KSK in a, in a orchestrated, transparent manner uh, involving uh, a lot of uh, witnesses and um, a lot of um, prepared processes that I can I can delve into. But um, yeah, we do these key ceremonies every three months. And so on a normal schedule, we would get 90 days worth of key material from VeriSign. Uh, we would sign it in one of these ceremonies and that would give us enough, enough signatures to use over the, the coming quarter. And we would do that incrementally every three months. Um, 
and yeah, um, we do these in a in a highly transparent way. Um, part of the design of the um, how we do uh, management of the KSK for the root zone was really to embrace transparency. Um, if you look at other certificate authorities um, in like-minded fields, they typically do a fairly um, secret and closed approach. Uh, they might rely on um, third-party auditors um, to give confidence to the community that the key is managed in an appropriate way. Um, but generally speaking, you can't go to uh, similar kinds of events when it comes to the trust anchors of other kinds of um, uh, PKI setups. Um, but this is ICANN and ICANN kind of um, has it in its DNA to be very transparent about these kinds of things. And we tried to carry that on into how we do the ceremonies for the KSK. So as a result, the ceremonies we do are public. Um, people are invited to attend. Um, and we very explicitly have a set of community members who have uh, sort of the expertise and the background to be able to witness these ceremonies, um, monitor them as they're going on in real time, provide real time feedback to the ceremony administrator um, so that adjustments might be made on the fly if necessary. But also once the ceremony is complete, communicate back to the broader community that they're confident that it was done in an appropriate way. And we think that that is pretty essential to making sure that we retain the trust of the community to manage the KSK um, by having these well-known uh, folks from the technical community attend, witness um, uh, the, the proceedings and then vouch for how it was conducted uh, is one of the key elements in ensuring we, we retain that trust. Well, and as people probably know, it's uh, it's not only witnessing, but they also have an active role. That's right. I mean, I see their, their predominant role as being witnesses to the ceremony, but they also play an essential role uh, in terms of how we um, enable uh, the um, secure devices that we use inside the ceremonies. Um, I think I would summarize um, the, the technical configuration of the ceremonies is that these are secured facilities that we maintain. We maintain two of them um, that are more or less replicas of one another. Uh, but these secure facilities have within them, um, within um, a security perimeter and various security controls, they fundamentally contain uh, specialized devices, hardware security models or HSMs. And within these HSMs, we store the actual private key of the root zone KSK. Uh, the way we've configured these HSMs is we've, um, they're enabled uh, using smart cards and we've configured them that uh, in order to enable one of the HSMs, you need three of seven of these smart cards present. Um, and we've distributed trust by basically entrusting each one of those trusted community representatives with one of those smart cards. I mean, without going into the logistics of the, the finer details of how it's done, um, by dividing the trust into seven pieces and then distributing it amongst seven people, um, it adds an extra layer of security that we can't um, do normal ceremony operations without convening a quorum of these um, trusted community representatives to attend a key ceremony. Which normally works quite well when there's not a global pandemic <laughs> and no, nobody can go anywhere. 
Uh, so it, it got kind of exciting because we had a ceremony scheduled for late April. Uh, and in fact, that was going to be at the uh, East Coast facility. Uh, Kim, Kim didn't mention, but there's there's one in the LA area, one of these key, key management facilities. And there's one in Culpeper, Virginia, which is, um, I think the idea is it's maybe just outside the atomic blast radius in uh, of Washington. So it's, <laughs> it's maybe an uh, hour and a half, two hour, not quite two hour drive. And uh, so I was actually scheduled to be the ceremony administrator for that that ceremony in, in late April, but it became it became increasingly clear that it was going to be difficult to get everybody there, and so uh, Kim had to plan for Plan B. And I mean, so you want to tell us how that all worked out? Yes. What was Plan B? <laughs> well, we developed a Plan B, a Plan C, a Plan D. I think we actually end, ended up on on Plan C in the end, um, but you're spot on. I mean, the the whole design of this system kind of made this huge assumption that we would fly people in from around the world to do these key ceremonies, and that there was this inherent security um, in having people distributed at rest, so that when we're not doing ceremonies, if you don't have all the people living in the same place and they're all distributed around the world, then the risk of there being some kind of unauthorized activity um, outside of a key ceremony was was minimized um, because you never had all the right people in the right place at the right time. So this works great um, for normal operations, um, but when you suddenly find yourself uh, in a situation where firstly, folks really can't practically travel, uh, but secondly, even if they could, um, you know, the public health authorities are basically advising you not to come together, um, particularly not, you know, random folks from different geographic locations. I mean, it, it's kind of exactly what you don't want to do during a pandemic. So um, we were, you know, we were considering this fairly early on, um, you know, to ICANN's credit. I mean, ICANN puts on major international events on a fairly regular basis and it has a team that's focused on assessing security threats and, and risks. And we had a fairly early insight into the trajectory that this was taking on. So we were able to start analyzing this with, with a fair amount of uh, advance notice. Um, but yeah, we really had to tackle the, the challenge of how would we do one of these ceremonies um, given the way this thing was evolving. Um, we started this, this thinking in sort of mid-February, I would say. Um, and at that time, it wasn't clear if, if it was going to be a blip or if it was going to be something drastic or somewhere in between. So we devised a, a whole set of options, sort of really a menu of options. Uh, each one incrementally was was deviating more from, from our normal traditions um, than the last. Um, some of the early options were, were simply, you know, should we just reschedule it? Like if we brought up the ceremony sooner, can we get ahead of this crisis and sort of bring people together um, and, and just get this done? Um, there were, should we relocate the ceremony? Would, would that be beneficial? Could we defer the ceremony? Um, there are all sorts of different um, options presented and we sort of analyzed the pros and cons. Uh, fundamentally, we wanted to make sure that whatever we did sort of preserved the fundamental trust of the community. So we we actively engaged those that are directly involved in key ceremonies and made sure that they were apprised of our thinking and had the opportunity to, to give their feedback. Uh, ultimately, what we settled on was um, firstly to move it. Um, 
Culpeper, Virginia, as beautiful as it is, um, doesn't have a lot of our staff members close to it. So um, we would have had great difficulty doing a ceremony there without having our staff uh, predominantly fly from California over to, to that area, which is something we wanted to avoid if possible. Uh, given our two facilities are more or less exact replicas of one another, um, it was fairly straightforward to uh, reschedule that to be in the California facility. Uh, the next thing we did was to minimize attendance. Um, we already knew that folks in other countries um, would find it practically impossible to attend the, the ceremony in person. So we had to think of creative ways to um, still maintain visibility and trust of that global community uh, in doing the ceremony, but, but without their physical presence in the room. Uh, we also took it a step further. We tried to minimize all participation in person. So it wasn't just our international audience, but we also minimized staff participation as well. Uh, ultimately, we settled on just having seven people in a key ceremony. Normally these ceremonies have you know, 25 plus people present. So seven was a, it was a marked reduction uh, in how we um, populate, populate the ceremony room. And we had to uh, have special accommodations around that and we also had sort of the basic accommodations that that everyone is being recommended to do so everyone was wearing face masks everyone maintained their distance and we took all these precautions as we were doing the ceremony and then the third deviation that we um, put in place was we actually um, rather than doing our normal three months worth of, of signing we actually did nine months worth of signing um, there we were trying to strike a balance between um getting past this pandemic sort of getting over the hump but not unduly signing way out into the future which presents its own risks so ultimately we wavered back and forth on, on different lengths of time but ultimately settled on nine months so it was really those three key things that we did um, in terms of modifying the ceremony that ultimately allowed us to conduct it successfully so the the trusted community representatives uh, they participated virtually that's right. Um, so we really wanted to make sure these trusted community representatives could fulfill their roles um, as best they could remotely, um, not sort of disempower them in, in any way and, and still have them be able to speak confidently back to their communities that the ceremony was conducted in a, in a proper manner. So the way that we did this is um, firstly, we, we identified um, four of the seven TCRs that would have typically come in person to the ceremony. And with their consent, they actually transferred their, their uh, credential, which is a, a small metallic key uh, that is used to access the safe inside the, the ceremony room. They independently transferred their keys um, to four different ICANN staff members. Um, we did this in such a way where the chain of custody of that key could be preserved, which means that when they ultimately got it back, um, they could have um, full confidence that the key was only used in a way that they had authorized. Uh, we do this using things like tamper evident bags so they can track the lineage of the key through when they put it in the, the post to when it got to us, to when it, that tamper evident bag was opened in the ceremony, they could witness that um, remotely um, using live streaming. After the ceremony was complete, we put the key back away was couriered back to them and then they could witness that the, the bag was as as they saw it packed in the ceremony. So that was one facet of that. 
And then the other facet was we uh, we obviously relied heavily on web streaming. Um, all those participants were following along remotely. They were able to interject as we were doing the ceremony. Um, we kind of walked around an iPad inside the ceremony room and, and held the iPad up nice and close to all the sort of critical elements as we were going ahead. So those TCRs could sort of, as much as possible, um, you know, it's not quite the same as being there, but really tried to be there as much as possible. Um, and tried to be ultra vigilant as we were doing the ceremony to make sure nothing we did ever escaped um, being watched um, from multiple different angles, from multiple different cameras. Um, so that was that was really the crux on how we were able to have those TCRs have meaningful participation, even though they were you know thousands of miles away. Hmm. Interesting. And it it all came off, right? It came off. It, I mean, it was a huge logistical challenge. Um, it's kind of of a scale that we're not used to in our in our little team. I mean, it's worth remembering that. Uh, in terms of these key ceremonies and, and management of the KSK in general, we really just have a team of two. Uh, we have two sort of dedicated full-time staff that really specialize in this. We call them the, the cryptographic business operations team. And, you know, their bread and butter is is preparing for these key ceremonies. And even in normal operations, it's, it's a fair amount of logistics and coordination to make them happen. But this was at a whole new level. We had to think through in relatively short order all the changes we needed to make we needed to bring them together very swiftly um and it was it was really a stellar job by by our team um but it was it was a lot of work but i'm you know i'm pleased to say it couldn't have gone off better given the given the constraints i mean it really seemed to have gone well that's great congratulations thank you so is the plan to not have another ceremony until it's required? So I guess it would be effectively skipping two ceremonies because there are three quarters worth of keys rather than just one calendar quarter? Yeah, uh, what we've done essentially enables us to skip all the remaining ceremonies for 2020. Um, the, the next key ceremony we would absolutely need to do would be usually around February 2021 on the current schedule. Um, it's it's unknown whether that will actually come to pass. Um, what we did do to do the ceremony in the fashion that we did was eliminate all non-essential activity from the key ceremony that we had planned. And we did have other things planned for the key ceremony that we still want to accomplish. For example, um, there's some hardware that we use inside the facility that we wanted to replace. Um, we we can defer that maintenance to a point, but at some point it would be ideal to, to do that um, hardware upgrade. So if, if the opportunity present, presents itself later in the year, we might do a ceremony to do that activity. Uh, we also had two of the trusted community representatives um, who were seeking to retire from their roles. They were from the original class from 2010. They've been doing it for 10 years. Uh, they felt the time was right to to pass the baton on to, to others. And we'd line that all up to, to replace them with two new recruits um, that we do in the ceremony context. Um, and we weren't able to do it this on this particular occasion. So I think we have a, some work that we could do in a ceremony that would mean if it's safe to do so, we might want to hold a ceremony later in the year. But in terms of cryptographic keys and, and signature expiries, we're good until the end of March of 2021. Good, good. 
All right. Well, thanks. I mean, that's, um, I don't know. I've, I've been doing DNS for so long that I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. And I just, I love my little part of it. And so maybe I hope I'm not uh, assuming how interesting uh, other folks think this is, but I would think if you're involved with DNS and know anything about it, um, you know, this is one of those potentially mysterious parts of it that uh, it, it's fun for me anyway, to hear how, how it really works, what's really going on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been involved in DNS for 30 plus years and I, I didn't know a lot of what you just went over. I will say that my, I think my TCR, my TCR invitation must have gotten lost in the mail. <laughs> did did you, know you actually what? apply? <laughs> no. You, you could. <laughs> is there is there a form somewhere that I need to fill out? <laughs> you know, we're, we're always looking for new volunteers. Um, either as a TCR, so if you feel that you fit the bill, um, we, we solicit statements of interest from TCRs and whenever there is a vacancy that presents itself, we, uh, we look at those statements of interest and um, you know, we try to preserve a balance in terms of skill sets, geographical location and so forth. So um, you know, we'll look at the, the pool of people that have volunteered and, and pick one out of, out of that group based on those criteria. Um, but even if if you don't feel that you are are quite at the level to be a trusted community representative, we always have opportunities um, just just to come in and witness the ceremony. Um, firstly, you can watch it on YouTube in real time. Um, but if you wanted to come to a ceremony and participate as just a just an uh, external witness, um, we have a few seats available for anyone off the street to really come in and. And just take a look and you know it sometimes i i look at these ceremonies and think they're deathly boring <laughs> um and there's certainly an element of that to them i mean kind of by design um uh, you know a successful ceremony is one that's not that exciting um but at the same time you know there is a certain mystique around them i mean we're constantly getting these reports of you know these key ceremonies being fictionalized in the media i mean we we see them on, on TV shows. You hear about the seven keys to the internet, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. there's definitely some intrigue around it. Um, and we also, you know, more generally, you know, we get press inquiries very regularly. So there's, there's this ongoing interest from the, from the media as well in, in what we do. So uh, if, you've, if you've not considered it, I would encourage your listeners to um, take an interest. We always like to see new people involved and, and watching and following along. Uh, keeps us on our toes and make sure we're doing these in a way that's accessible to everyone. Well, uh, is there is there a, a, a DNS SAT or ACT involved in in applying? <laughs> uh, it's pretty straightforward. We have uh, we have forms on our website, um, and we can uh, we can point you to them. Just go to the IANA website or, or search for mm -hmm. IANA KSK ceremony. It should be pretty easy to find. I would I would bet Matt that given our listenership, our dozens of listeners, that there, we have to have some TCRs in the audience, right? <laughs> oh, I, I know. Uh, so Olafur is a is a TCR, and and we know he listens and regularly screams at his uh, iPhone. Yes, based exactly. on various statements we no doubt make that are questionable. So, yeah. all right. Well, thank you, Kim. That's really that's really interesting. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Um, Glad you my could pleasure. fit it into your travel schedule. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. Yes. My travel <laughs> schedule is is just unbelievable right now. Uh, coronavirus humor. 
Well, we actually have something in the mailbag, Wonder wow. of Wonders. Um, so why don't we actually answer a question? Uh, this is from Swapneil Patnakar. I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, hello, Matt Cricket. Trust this email finds you well. In the recently released Analysis of the Effects of COVID-19 Related Lockdowns on IMRS Traffic by ICANN's Office of the CTO, uh, it's quite evident the volume of junk queries that get sent to the root servers. It's quite evident the volume of junk queries that get sent to the root servers. Um, I should stop and say that, uh, so this is research that uh, the research team within the Office of the CTO worked on uh, with help from other folks in, in ICANN, including the DNS engineering team. And IMRS in this context is the ICANN managed root server, which is how mm -hmm. we're trying now to refer to what everyone uh, probably knows as LROOT, uh, the, the root server that ICANN operates. And what, uh, what we wanted to do was take a look at uh, root server traffic and find out, has it, has it changed now that you know, the world is basically at, at home and not doing what they're usually doing? So uh, that was really good uh, work by Roy Ahrens, and he wrote a paper on it that's been, that's been published. We'll go ahead and put the, uh, the title and the URL in the show notes. Uh, so Swapnil continues, despite the best interests of RFC 7706, which is called a hyperlocal root, and RFC 8198, aggressive use of DNSSEC validated cache to increase the resiliency of the DNS root, they fall short from an adoption perspective for various reasons. Uh, until then, given that the large chunk of these junk queries are from Chrome, are you aware of a formal specification RFC guideline for consequences of excessive abuse of the root servers? Thank you and stay safe. Maybe like a fine. You could fine Google for excessive use of the roots. Do you, Cricket, are you aware what Chrome does? Yeah, it 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 sends queries for for synthesized domain names, right, at startup to determine whether or not it has internet connectivity or whether it's actually connected using some sort of a captive portal. I think that's yeah, that's, that's the gist of it, right? It yeah, strings exactly. together a bunch of a bunch of uh, you know gibberish alphanumerics and looks it up. Yeah. So if you uh, if you're not familiar, would you care to guess what fraction of the queries, at least at the ICANN root server, are attributable to to Chrome? Oh Lord, uh, I don't want to guess. <laughs> oh come on, I'm going to force uh, you to guess. I mean, I remember those old studies of traffic to the roots where you know they they have this sort of taxonomy of which you know what percentage were for you know uh, IP addresses. Uh, of IP addresses right. and and you know bogus TLDs and stuff like that. But that given was Dwayne, popular, Dwayne Wessels did that. Yeah, sort of the yeah, that was that. Dwayne and 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 I think Casey Claffey and and some other um, Evie Nemeth. I think that was a that was an interesting, uh, really interesting paper. Um, but I mean, the I think overall the junk traffic at the roots is is something like high 90%, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is what, half of that maybe? A third. It's about a third. A third, wow. Yeah, yeah. so right. I mean, to, to just quickly summarize what the, uh, what the paper said, uh, we looked at, uh, the, so the short answer is yes, there's more, there's more traffic. Um, there's uh, about 20 to 25% more uh, across the board. And we, we zeroed in on the four instances that uh, we run in France to kind of use that as a microcosm for uh, 
the rest of the world because France went into lockdown relatively quickly. And also that's just less data to analyze if we only look at four instances instead of the 160 plus or whatever, however many there are. And uh, yeah, there's there's lots more. There's also, um, what's interesting is the uh, several TLDs, and of course now that I'm on the spot, I'm not gonna be able to remember them all, uh, went up significantly, non-existent TLDs. Uh, dot home, dot local, mm. and dot corp had uh, had significant um, significant increases in in traffic, like like doubling, tripling, five times as much, which uh, you know you can you can attribute to people using different resolvers to to, to devices that are probably usually on a on a, a company network on the employer right. network now now at home. So I. Right. I I mean, there's more detail in the paper that I'd encourage everybody to take a look at if that sounds interesting. What an excellent question. It is. Yeah, very uh, timely and great. Yeah. I, you know, Cricket, you should have read it because now I've done all this talking. So <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm learning in, in this episode. I'm perfectly okay with that. <laughs> we realize what point of the episode that brings us to. Yes, the, the witty banter. The witty section. banter portion. Uh, I have not thought in advance at all what witty banter we might have. I was thinking just a moment ago uh, that I think the last time we had a podcast, you were, I think you were exhorting me to watch Picard, and I, I did watch all of Picard. So, so I'm I'm fully Picarded. I'm I'm all caught up. Kim, are you a Star Trek fan, and have you seen the Picard? One of the joys of having two young children is I can't remember <laughs> the last thing I watched that wasn't animated. <laughs> There, there used to be an animated Star Trek series. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any of those, but I know it exists. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, so what did you good. think of Picard? Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was fun to see. Uh, it was fun to see Jerry Ryan play Seven of Nine again, and uh, it was fun to see some of the ties that they made uh, to to TNG that they brought Hugh back. Um, because I'd actually gone back. I think you'd you'd mentioned Picard, and so I went back and watched some of the my favorite TNG episodes, which included I Borg, which was the episode where they introduced Hugh. And I think you'd even mentioned Hugh to me. You'd mm -hmm. given me a teaser and said, you know, he may he may be back. Um so that was fun. Um you know, generally I would say I I I enjoyed it. And now I've gone back and I'm partway, maybe halfway through uh the second season of uh of of Discovery. I had only watched the first season and so now I'm I figure, well what the heck, I'll watch the second season. Yeah, I I really like Discovery. I'm waiting for season three. I don't know, it's coming. I don't know anything about the timing. Yeah, and then and uh, did you uh, did you read um, Scalzi's new book, the the last of the collapsing empire? Oh, absolutely. I, I had pre ordered it, and it showed up on my Kindle at the earliest possible moment. In fact, I think we I think we exchanged email about yeah. that. So I'm I'm done with that, and now I'm about a third of the way through the um, through Network Effect, which is the the full uh the full murderbot novel and i just finished that oh, oh. <laughs> i have nothing then <laughs> <laughs> no so for all our uh sci-fi fans uh yeah those first off if, if you haven't discovered john scalzi just immediately go out and read everything he's written i I regret that I've read everything because there's no new Scalzi for me to read. I've even reread some of it. The, I've reread all the old man's war books and they mm -hmm. stand up just great on rereading. And then the, the Murderbot books are, it's four novellas and then a novel by Martha Wells, 
who heretofore, I believe, had only written fantasy. I believe that's right. Yeah, and uh, I just, I just loved loved them. I thought they were really good books. Yeah, yeah, really fun reads. Yeah. He's <laughs> the protagonist is is very um, relatable, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> despite the fact that he's a murder bot. Yeah, yeah. So. Did you watch? Uh, did either of you guys watch Upload? No, it, it, it's not. <laughs> I mean, it's not calling my name. I don't. I don't think I'm mm-hmm. going to watch it. Did, did you? Did you like it? Yeah, I just finished. Uh, 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 we just finished the first season. I think uh, yesterday, or the day before. It's enjoyable. I, you know, I, it's not on the level of of uh, Altered Carbon, which I thought was was the first season of Altered Carbon. I thought was excellent. Um, Have you read it? Actually, those? has. Oh, go ahead. Okay, no, I was going to change the subject a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say I, I don't think it's quite on the the same level of that, but it has some similarities in terms of theme. Have you read the uh, the Altered Carbon books? Uh, I read the first book. Yeah, I, so I just read, and I just read the second one as, as, as well. So I'm sort of saving the third one for, I don't want to read everything in all at once. I, I, I don't know about you, but I have just been really indulging myself in fiction, you know, while the world melts down around me. That's sort of my escape is... <laughs> I bet I, I bet I've read twelve novels in the last two months. Wow, yeah, that is impressive. Yeah, well, I haven't done near, nearly. <laughs> no, that. I don't know that it's a stat I should be boasting about. I mean, I should be, as I look around this office of mine that's in need of cleaning, and there's always dirty dishes and any number of honeydew projects around the house, and yet I sit and cower and read my novel. Yeah, Kim, how old are your kids? I've got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. <clears throat> so, oh, you're very busy. <laughs> yes. I'm taking copious notes for when my illusory spare time comes back. <laughs> um, I've seen I've seen the uh, teasers for uh, Upload, and yeah, it, it seems interesting to me. Um, but like I said, I mean, my, my one respite of, of traveling a lot in normal times is uh, get on the plane, load up an iPad with a bunch of episodes of something or other, and and get caught up, but it's not happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Kim, is your, is your wife working? Are you having to, to trade off on uh, childcare duty? My wife is working. She's working from home as well, so we're kind of switching on and off throughout the day. Um, and then, actually, a, an additional complication I have is that my sister-in-law uh, is working from my house as well, and she's actually doing contact tracing. She works for the the um, the county health department. So she's uh, doing all that fun stuff as well. Mm. Is, wow. is that, is that something? So she normally, well, I guess this, as I'm starting to ask this question, I'm realizing it's a dumb question. She normally does something else, but then she's, she's been now pressed into service doing contact tracing. That's right. Yeah. She normally does something completely unrelated for the health department, but they're kind of pulling in all their staff to, to focus on this effort, at least while they can't do their regular jobs. Yeah, it's important work. Um, yeah, it must be fascinating too. I wonder, you know, there there must be some really interesting techniques that they use. I'll, I'll, plus, a lot of just you know grinding through it and calling people and interviewing people and stuff like that, right? Right. I mean, I I won't pretend to know the specifics, but I think just as we did with the key ceremony I was mentioning earlier, is that there's been 
they've had to go from zero to 100 real quick and develop protocols mm -hmm. and all these processes around it, you know, in very short order. And there's just been a huge amount of manpower thrown at it to try and solve these problems and develop a process. And um, yeah, it's it's sort of everyone's world's kind of shifted out from under them. And uh, this is the new normal for a while. Yeah. Wow. Well, should we call it a day? Is that uh, is that a, a legitimate day's work in, in the podcasting business? Uh, I, I sure <laughs> think so. It's quite late where you are. So do you want to take us out? Sure. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks especially to Kim Davies for coming on and telling us about key ceremonies and PTI and all those things. And uh, so this episode is proof that if you send in a question, we will answer it. And so you can send those questions to Mr. DNS at askmrdns.com. So uh, mrdns at ask-mrdns.com. So thanks for listening and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.